During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, an essay by Virginia Woolf was sought out by many readers. She begins by conjuring the physical and psychological effects of many ailments. Considering how common illness is, she writes, how tremendous the spiritual change that it brings, how astonishing when the lights of health go down, the undiscovered countries that are then disclosed, what wastes and deserts of the soul a slight attack of influenza brings to view, what precipices and lawns sprinkled with bright flowers a little rise of temperature reveals, what ancient and obdurate oaks are uprooted in us by the act of sickness, how we go down into the pit of death and feel the waters of annihilation close above our heads and wake thinking to find ourselves in the presence of the angels and the harpers when we have a tooth out and come to the surface in the dentist's armchair and confuse his rinse the mouth, rinse the mouth with the greeting of the deity stooping from the floor of heaven to welcome us. When we think of this, as we are so frequently forced to think of it, it becomes strange indeed that illness has not taken its place with love and battle and jealousy among the prime themes of literature. Novels, one would have thought, would have been devoted to influenza, epic poems to typhoid, odes to pneumonia, lyrics to toothache, but no, with a few exceptions. Words of Virginia Woolf from her essay on being ill. Essayist Brian Dillon values Woolf's piece and suggests that her thoughts then lead her to consider what it feels like to read Shakespeare while laid up with the flu. For the first time, she says, we find ourselves attuned to the strangeness of Shakespeare, feeling ourselves the madness of Hamlet and appreciating the figural variety and weirdness of his language. Finally, according to Virginia Woolf, we can almost feel what it means to be within Hamlet's mind. Adam Randis is a veteran director of regional theater and a history scholar and teacher, and in taking on the challenge of directing Shakespeare's Hamlet, he finds he's drawn to exploring the very mind of Hamlet in a way that may just help viewers to tune into the strangeness of Hamlet's world without even a sneeze, a nod to Virginia Woolf. DM Performance Works in Nuremberg will present Hamlet from July 21st through the 24th with Adam Randis directing and Tim Solarek as Hamlet. Adam and Tim paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk about their vision for the show. Adam Randis. Knowing that this was a, a show that we were going to base specifically around Hamlet the character, which already is it's a titanic part, it's the most lines of any Shakespeare character, especially in comparison to everyone else's lines. Nobody has the kind of burden that Hamlet has in the Shakespeare canon. But that then led me to also think about modern audiences don't always want to think, oh, you know, let's consider attention spans or let's consider, you know, modern tastes. But at the same time, when you're dealing with Shakespeare, that is a very real thing to consider. So... One way that I found to really kind of pare it down to its essentials, because this story, as, as we've alluded to, has been told and retold and recontextualized, not just in doing Shakespeare, but it's The Lion King. It's mm -hmm. the new Robert Eggers movie, The Northman. Something about this touches those raw nerves in people, and, is, and especially today, I think, too. So 
the interiority of Hamlet is something that I wanted to focus on. This is a show obviously about Hamlet, his name's in the title, but it's a show that literally is Hamlet. And so when we were conceptualizing this and I was talking to Tim about how we would tackle it, we sheared off a lot. Basically, any of the action that took place outside of Elsinore and its immediate environs, we got rid of. We got rid of whole characters. We moved soliloquies around. We put some lines that were originally in some people's mouths and in other people's mouths. This is not a Hamlet that will have Fortinbras coming in at the end. This is not a Hamlet that will have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern putzing around. Instead, this is a show that focuses on the interiority of Hamlet and literally takes place within the interiority of Hamlet. So we want to think about the space of Elsinore as being that almost primordial um, space that Hamlet himself is stuck in. Because so much of so much of what I think relates today with Hamlet is this idea of arrested development. And Hamlet himself, in terms of arrested development, not just the will he won't he, but I mean he has grown up and lived in in his father and mother's house this entire time. Obviously, so much has been made of the uh, the more Oedipal side of things, but in, in a very real sense, Elsinore is the womb space for Hamlet. And perhaps part of the reason why he doesn't make a decision is because he never really had to until life circumstances, the death of his father, whom he absolutely revered, is his father is literally yanked out from under him and his uncle takes the place. And that is world shaking to him. But his world is still insular. His world is still this world where he has been coddled or this world that he, you know, he is a prince. He is the, he's the heir apparent. Yes, but he hasn't necessarily had to struggle. He fences and he has done all sorts of training to be a king and, and combat training, etc. But he's living in this bubble. And so does he break out of the bubble? Does he continue to try to find safety? And how can you find safety when, the father figure that looms so largely over him is no longer there. And the mother figure that he thought he trusted has done something that he sees as unconscionable in marrying his uncle. So our focus really is then, if you can consider this version of Hamlet to be taking place entirely in Hamlet's mind. It is Hamlet by Hamlet. He already is an actor. We make it very clear. He he plays at madness. Does he eventually go mad in the playing or doesn't he? That's always been up for debate. But there's no question that this is the story of Hamlet's making. And so we've literally pared it down to those bare essentials of the story of Hamlet from Hamlet's perspective. When you hear Adam lay that out, then that's quite a tall order. Absolutely. And that's some of the fun things we were actually just speaking about that we're going to try here tonight at rehearsal how to portray that without blatantly saying this is all in my mind. What are the subtle little nuances a character may have where where the audience may say, hmm, is he mad? Was this real? Was it? Of course, when Adam said he was going to cut a lot of the others, the first thing you think is, oh, man, now I'm not going to have the break backstage to <laughs> grab some water and look, and okay, <laughs> look, at my, look at my next block. Okay, I'm coming in from this side. But we're going to be true to the character. We're going to be true to the story. But I've seen several different versions, whether they be modern, where they try to make it in everyday life. I know I was laughing with him. One of the things I did was watch Leonardo DiCaprio's Romeo and Juliet to give it kind of more of a modern flow, not so much accentiness, all that kind of stuff. But it's going to be fun to play, like I said, play that madness. I always like to do those over-the-top people. But with this being such a classical piece, 
you take it over the top, but you still have to be true. I mean, when people come into that audience that night, everyone has heard to be or not to be. So that's that's something we want to be true to. But like I said, have a little fun with maybe giving some interpretation, having the audience wonder, hmm, what's going on in the beginning? They find maybe find out at the end, not to spoil any, any kind of teasers there. But yeah, it's going to be a fun, unique way to do it. I firmly told Joel, who owns the theater, I'd love to play Hamlet, but there's only one guy I want up there in the booth, and that's him right there. And that's that's the great part about having a director who not only will tell you when you're good, they'll tell you when you're wrong, but they'll trust you. They know your process at the end. It's great to know that there's a director who has faith in you to say, okay, no, I know you're going to get it. And not to mention, he plays quite a wonderful Polonius as well. We think about Polonius and his advice, right? <laughs> well, I think Polonius can be played a lot of different ways. And especially for, for our production, Polonius is essentially a foil. He's a foil to Hamlet and his plans. But at the same time, he is a loving father. There's, there's no way that he could not have been a good father when you look at the reactions to his death that Ophelia and Laertes have. So there's something, too. There is a genuine affection there between him and and his children, which we're, which I believe we'll be, we'll be doing our best to get across. He is a blowhard, and he loves to hear his own voice. But at the same time, the familial bonds that they have are extremely strong. And there's no question his children love him, and there's no question he loves them. So that's something that we want to make sure that we get across in between the blubbering and the bluster. Is that familial unit any reflection on family overall in this mix? So much of this is about dysfunction in family. So I think, it, and there's never a mention of a mother for, for Laertes and, and Ophelia. So you almost have to figure that this again is, is perhaps making the best of a situation where the mother isn't around anymore. So maybe Polonius had to be father and mother. That's maybe one of the reasons why he gives fatherly advice to Laertes, but also kind of motherly-ish advice to Ophelia about what to watch out for in Hamlet, what he believes to watch out for in Hamlet. Uh, but that's the thing. I mean, this, this show and familiar relations, I think, is one of the reasons why it has been so ubiquitous. I mean, you think about the, the central conceit of the beginning of this show is a brother murders a brother. It's Cain and Abel. It's literally from the beginning of time, family turning on family, that sacred thing that is supposed to be inviolable and is from the wellspring from which all civilization and culture comes is from the family unit. And yet there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. And when the family is corrupted in some way, whether that be external corruption or internal corruption, it weighs heavy. And that's why, you know, Disney can make movies with lions doing it. That's why it can be recontextualized, put into different mouths, put into different characters. And there's these echoes of Hamlet because Hamlet is an echo of things that have come before it as well. And I mean, you talk about being relatable to today's audience. I mean, I, I would argue Hamlet is the first millennial. <laughs> this idea of, of being in that state of, you know, an adult, but not an adult. Being in that state of, I, I believe I have ownership and control of my life, but then also feeling like circumstances for whatever reason, the economy, the jobs, COVID has taken it out of your control. Do I move out or don't I move out? <laughs> you know, who, who do I marry? Who don't I marry? And it's, it's, it's relatable to a modern audience. I think Hamlet's indecision 
is relatable to 2022 Americans and specifically people of the 20 something to early 30 something range. It's it's something that they're dealing with right now, maybe not in a castle in Denmark, but in their homes in Northeast PA or wherever they are. We noted, Tim, that your 30 Hamlet is 30. Are these issues that you see in your contemporaries? Oh, without a doubt, especially millennials here, whether it be the student loans or, like he said, COVID, a lack of jobs, things like that. I mean, I know several people who haven't moved out of stay at home, everything like that. It, its issues resonate today, maybe not in the same way as kill a king and marry with his brother. However, not to quote Hamlet, but those struggles, those things, those pressures, everything, everyone internalizes their emotions, their their feelings, everything like that. And I think when you see Hamlet, especially the way we're going to do it, those frustrations and everything kind of motivate him as a person and it makes you choose. Do you, do you want to, as he plays in, is he going to play this crazy? Is he going to be, is he going to let it make him crazy or is he going to just push on through. So, I mean, it definitely resonates not directly in the same kind of storytelling as that, but definitely those kind of pressures and everything. Just being a young individual who kind of, I don't want to say necessarily lost his way, but his world got shaken, turned upside down, and now he's got to figure it out. What about the women, Ophelia and Gertrude, when you have to interact with your mother, Gertrude? And that's another function of what you would see in society in today's family. He loves his mother. He hates what she did. I think that's a common theme in some, for lack of a better term, maybe broken homes or anything that you have family issues here. He loves his mother. At the end of the day, he does. But he hates who she became, not who she is. And that's that's a big theme in this. Obviously, life and death takes it to the nth degree of, of where that goes. But there's microcosms of that even in today's society. I think more so in today's society. And Adam, what about Ophelia? She's often seen as an enigma. I think Ophelia and Gertrude have both been very maligned throughout history as being perhaps not fully well-rounded or well-written characters or or being bad characters, bad in the sense of poorly written in some arguments or, or bad as in the sense of not being good people. And I think both of those might perhaps miss the boat on, on both of those characters because if if you look at Gertrude and assume, as her dead husband does, that she did not know that Claudius murdered him, what is she really doing? She's marrying She's marrying the best choice for stability and peace in her kingdom with Fortinbras knocking on the door outside, ready to come in and make a claim for the throne that his father once had. So she's filling a power vacuum. She's, she's biting the bullet and making the best decision for Denmark. Does Hamlet see it that way? No, because he's the kid whose dad just died and who feels like his mom has uh, has turned her back on his dead father. But she's making a political decision. As much as she loves her son, he's not ready to be king. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of the action of the play proves he's not ready to be king. <laughs> so she made a decision to kind of buy her son some time because she loves him so much. I mean. Not to get into spoilers for a 500-year-old show, but we know the ultimate sacrifices that she's willing to make for him. So we see that in her. And with Ophelia, Ophelia is such a tragic figure because she truly loves Hamlet. And she is caught up in everybody else's machinations and does not have the agency to machinate herself. She doesn't have the ability to play these kind of Machiavellian chessboard games. She's literally just the pawn. And 
there's a sympathy that needs to be there for her in understanding that she has to go along with the scheme that her father and Claudius have made to see if Hamlet is truly mad. But in that scene where she's talking to Hamlet and he's playing madness, she's trying to see not if he's truly mad, but if it's her fault. And when her father dies, it's her fault. So in the scene where she's ultimately broken, people I've seen it played like she's almost like a Medusa crazy uh, smeared lipstick and eyeshadow and everything. But it's not that she's not a wailing banshee. She's broken. She's broken by circumstances like we were talking about with Hamlet, with millennials, that she feels like she doesn't have control over. And in a very real sense, she doesn't have control over that. Everyone else has control over her. And does that make her a poorly written character? No, it absolutely does not. It makes her a sympathetically portrayed version of, unfortunately, what many women would have to have dealt with back then, as well as today in a patriarchal society where they don't have the agency that they need to make the decisions and do the things for themselves. And Kate McDonald, who is playing Ophelia, is wonderful in really, you you can connect with her when she's sane and when she's not so sane because you can see the hurt as much as you can see the love. And I think that's something that's wonderful for Tim to play off Mm -hmm. of when he's on stage with her. It's something that is, it's heartbreaking, as as it should be. How are you treating the ghosts, also the sword play? How are you dealing with those logistical matters? Well, the ghost is there. There have been some productions that have completely cut the ghost. Now, We made the decision to actually cut the opening scene, the oldest knock-knock joke, supposedly, as they say, who's there, because essentially Hamlet's not there, and Hamlet only hears about it, so we just have Hamlet hearing about it. But Hamlet confronting his father is there. We have a ghost. Scott Werben is playing the ghost, and he is also, to tie together your two points, our fight choreographer and armorer. So the climactic duel between Laertes and Hamlet and all of its bloody glory is there. And they actually have a fight choreography brush-up rehearsal tomorrow. Not but they've, tomorrow. Been doing, they've been doing it, and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. The one thing that we really want to do with this production is make it so that in making it a shorter version of Hamlet, but keeping all of the important points, I think it really does hammer home the tension that is there in the piece. And it, and it hammers home with a more modern sense of paced momentum that this story is literally, I mean, it's, it's called the tragedy of Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. There's no surprises here about how tragedies end. But I think in, in its, I don't want to say truncated, but in its more crystalline, concentrated form, you really get a sense, as opposed to the more sprawling four and a half hour version, which would be every line intact, that this is, this is barreling to a very dangerous conclusion. And you get a sense of that when you get the, the sense of momentum that we have with the way these folks are doing it. And do you feel that you are gaining insights into Hamlet and into the play every time you get to rehearsal? Oh, without a doubt, absolutely. I mean, it's been it's been a few months here. Like Adam kind of instructed me, there's seven checkpoints, all those soliloquies, then we fill in the rest. And I was joking with him before, I said this morning I woke up at 3 a.m. thinking, oh no, I don't know any of my lines, and I'm laying in their bed reciting them, reciting them, reciting them, and then even looking at them, sometimes you'll learn a line, and then you'll think, 
You'll read it a different way with a different inflection. You'll say, oh, that's what he means by that. But oh my goodness, yeah. Do you have a line that is trippingly on the tongue that you just love <laughs> to say, whether you know what it means or not? Well, as as I'm sure you kind of got a feel here on stage, I, I'm sort of a rageaholic. I like to crank up the intensity. So, of course, the famous bedroom scene with Gertrude Come, come, sit you down. You shall not budge till I set you up a glass where you may see the innermost part of you. Because what he's telling her is, you you think this is okay. And going back to the way Adam orchestrated this whole production, it's through Hamlet's perspective. So that really resonates. Not only that, but for in this sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, which might foreshadow a little bit of our version, what's going on. But there's there's countless ones. There's countless. And of course, you have to be or not to be. When you're on stage and that spotlight hits you as an actor and you say to be or not to be, and everyone in the audience says, ooh, even if they don't know anything about Shakespeare, their ears perk up when they hear that because it's something they know that they can relate to, that they understand through, obviously, media and everything like that, other uses, everything like that, whether it be revering it, making fun of it, and that has to be the line. But for me, I, I really love that, that Gertrude scene. That's the one that really hits home for me. Yeah, and the, the line we use for the poster is, is in there, in, in that to be or not to be soliloquy. And it's it's almost like if you consider our version of Hamlet to be the fever dream of Hamlet, is essentially what this is. Mm-hmm. It's, it is what kind of dreams are coming when his life is at an end. That's what it is. Adam Randis, director and actor Tim Solaric, who will be Hamlet, Speaking about the DM Performance Works production of Shakespeare's tragedy, Hamlet, at the Factory Theater in Nuremberg, 15 School Street, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, July 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Evening performances, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7, a Sunday matinee at 3. That's Hamlet, produced by DM Performance Works, at the Factory Theater in Nuremberg, Pennsylvania, 15 School Street, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, July 21st through the 24th, the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd at 7, and a Sunday matinee at 3. For more information on the web, dmpwshows.org, dmpwshows.org, and that's for DM Performance Works, so dmpwshows.org. Hamlet at the Factory Theatre in Nuremberg, 